Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And I want to open with a quote that I like. It comes from Winston Churchill. It goes like this. To improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. Well, that's the ideal way to open this podcast because you're going to be hearing from Ben Nempton. You may recognize that name if you like the show The Buried Life. It was a big hit on MTV a few years back. And it's centered around four guys who, around the time they're in college in Canada, are a little down on their luck. Some are depressed. Some are anxious. And they get into a deep conversation. And at the end of this conversation, they decide to write a list of the things they want to do before they die. This sets them off on an expedition to cross those things off their list. And the expedition takes them to places that they could not have imagined. Why? Because as they're crossing things off the list, they're meeting people and they're asking those people, what's on your list? What do you want to do before you die? When they hear, they go about trying to cross those things off these other lists. Perhaps my favorite episode was about a high school student named Tori who was born without a hand. And it was always her wish to have a hand. And these guys set it up with a company that makes bionic limbs to create a bionic hand for Tori. And when you see Tori hugging her dad for the first time with that bionic hand, you will never forget it. And you understand why the show was such a big hit. Led to a New York Times best-selling book, What Do You Want to Do Before You Die? And a production company that these guys started in L.A. It was like a dream. Or was it? Not long ago, I go to do a speaking engagement with my pal Alex Benayan about his new book, The Third Door. In fact, today, June the 5th, is the day of its official release. Took him seven years to write it. And this book is all about change. If you need to change, pick up The Third Door because it changed my life. I spent a few years overseeing him write this book. And in that process, he changed my life because Alex is the one who introduced me to Tim Ferriss. And Tim is the one who convinced me to have this podcast. Alex is the one who introduced me to Ben. And so at the end of this engagement, this speaking engagement, there's Ben. Hey, how you doing? Great, he says. What are you up to? Oh, I'm traveling around speaking. And I'm saying, speaking, hold it. You're running this production company. And he starts to tell me how he hated the nuts and bolts of this production company. And I said, what? And he says, yeah. And it was almost like he was back where he was at the start when he went on his first adventure. And I said, I got to hear more about this. Why don't you come to breakfast? So he comes to Larry King's breakfast table and he's telling us all about what happened when he's at the center of this production company and how he didn't like it 
and how it set him off as a public speaker. And I said, I got to hear more. So we set up in front of the microphones to talk this out even further. And I'm so glad we did because you realize that we make so many changes throughout our lives and we got to be prepared to keep making change after change in order to be happy. And this conversation proves it out. So I hope you enjoy it. And I want to thank our sponsors, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter for bringing it to you because when it gets down to it, I couldn't have better sponsors to do a podcast about change. ZipRecruiter and Squarespace, all about change. We'll get to that in the mid-roll. But right now, here we go with Ben Nempton. Welcome to Big Questions, Ben Nempton. You know, we've been talking for a little while before recording started, and you brought up a story about what might have been the best day of your life. <laughs> I would just love to start on that story because I think it leads to a place where ultimately we're going to go. Okay. But it so filled me with wonder mm -hmm. that I'd just like you to tell it again. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I guess to preface the story, I love surprises. I've always tried to, anytime there's a special event, I'll always try and surprise my friends or family in a kind of an elaborate way, really just in a place that they least expect it. And so when I turned 30, my sister and her boyfriend came down to Venice, where I live in LA, and my, the rest of my family couldn't make it. And, uh, and they're from Canada, They're right? from Canada, yeah. So they flew down. And uh, we had this birthday party plan, but other than that, that was it. And I, uh, my sister invited me to, you know, she's like, let's go for lunch. And I said, oh, I got the best taco truck we got to go to. So I meet her and her boyfriend at the taco truck. We order tacos and my tacos number gets called. I go back up to pick up my tacos. And one of my good friends pops out and serves me the tacos <laughs> out of nowhere. So I'm like, oh my God, you flew down and you hid in this taco truck. And how did you guys figure this out? Flew and, from Canada. Yeah, she flew down from Canada. And, and so then I was just kind of, I was blown away by that. And, and I went back to work. And then at the, in the evening, I was like, let's all meet for a drink. Let's go down like to- You thought this is amazing here. Yeah, I, I was like, wow, this is, thank you guys for organizing this. This is so cool. And then I go down to um, Venice Ale House because I'm like, we got to go down and have a beer at Venice Ale House to celebrate. And I order a beer and the waitress comes back and it's my mom with a beer on a tray. <laughs> and I am just, at this one, I am- just totally flabbergasted and I finally I'm like like mom like where's you know where's dad like and she's like oh he had this work thing he couldn't make it and then I hear this fiddling in the corner of my ear I hear this fiddling and my dad plays the violin and my dad comes up fiddling on the boardwalk up to our table and starts singing to us and I just I, I kind of like break down there I just am this is too much and we all go back to my house and then two of my best friends are sitting in our hot tub at home. And so now I'm just, this is continuing to happen and happen. And I'm still not putting together that there might be more surprises. So you always think, oh, this is the top. This is it. Nothing's going to beat even, this. Yeah. And so eventually 
10 of my friends and family surprised me in a 24-hour period. And it all sort of taught, like the, the height of it was we have this party, everyone's there, you know, it's, it's, it's such a fun night. And there's, uh, I think it was like probably 100 people at our house. And my friend comes to me and he says, hey, your parents have a surprise for you. And I'm thinking, what? Like, and he's like, yeah, they, they got a real like crappy mu- uh, magician to come. And I'm like, oh no, like you can't stop the party for like a, mag- a crappy magician. Like this is, we're having so much fun. And, and so they stopped the party and I'm kind of like embarrassed because like now a hundred people are just sitting watching me in the backyard. And then this like a smoke bomb goes off and then this music starts and this tall, looks like someone on someone else's shoulder, but all cloaked with a mask comes walking through the back gate. And I'm just like, what is going on? And they're doing this dance and it's a synchronized dance. Are you thinking this could be good or this is not going? I'm like, this is, this is like my, my birthday has just gone south. Right? I'm, like, <laughs> oh, no. I'm like, why does everyone have to sit through this? And they're, they're doing like cheesy jokes, like pulling out like a plastic poo, you know, on their hands and being like, oh, you smell. And then like taking a wand and turning it into a flower. And so I'm just kind of like, okay. And then they rip off their masks and it's my best friend who flew in from medical oh, school. In, he's in Northern BC in British Columbia. So I knew he couldn't come because he had an exam. But after the exam, him and his girlfriend flew down, landed in LAX at 11 o'clock, got to my house by 12 and performed this whole dance routine before they revealed. And I just like, I lost it. I was just so, so I couldn't control my body. I don't think I was just like so excited to see them. And, uh, and yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it was, the best day of my life, like because I, there was why, all the why people. Was it, why was it? The I don't best know. Day I just because life. I was overwhelmed by how much love there was. I guess you know I was just overwhelmed by the lengths that people would go to make me, um, you know, happy. To the, the lengths that my sister went to put it all together, and I guess just to see how much they cared about me to actually do that, you know, just really made me like internalize this feeling of, wow, I have a lot of really special people in my life. And, and it, that kind of means everything to me, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of it. And, and so, and I just had the most fun day, you know, oh, the other thing, the, one of the best surprises, I'm at work and I get called into a meeting in the conference room. And I go into the conference room and two of my, two of my good friends are dressed in suits and there's all these balloons in the conference room and they have champagne. And they're just sitting there. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Pop the champagne. So like this, you know, happened throughout the whole sort of 24 hours that uh, that my birthday was, right? So it was a, you know, I, I don't know, just looking back, it's one of the most memorable days. I mean, maybe it's definitely one of the most memorable days I've ever had. And, uh, and just that feeling that you get, it, it makes me, like, that's why I love surprising people because it, it really means so much to them. You know, because you, you sort of, they're kind of floored by that you put this thought and energy into a moment uh, for them. And and so I, I love, you know, creating that. And my sister knew that because I've done it so many times to my family and friends. So this was her being like, okay, we really have to, you know, we're going to do this. I mean, I surprised my sister in Bali for her 30th birthday, which was really funny because I flew I told her I couldn't come and I flew to Bali and hid in an Airbnb that I rented and coordinated with her boyfriend. So she walked in and I popped out 
And she literally was scared out of her mind. Like she <laughs> hit the floor thinking that maybe she was going to get robbed. And so it was a, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the excitement of, and the planning of it. And, and so anyhow. And yeah. you see, and this is the thing. I look at you, your show, and I just feel a tremendous sense of happiness and excitement wherever you go. And, and so it, it really strikes me that so much of what's happened in your life is grounded in a sense of depression. Yeah. How, I'm wondering how can this, because I look at you and you are like the picture of happiness. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, I, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of downs and I think through those struggles, you really learn who you are and you learn what you need to be happy. And if you don't go through the trenches, you might not learn that. And so for me, you know, I've struggled with depression and I've, and I've really learned from it. And I've realized the things that are really important to me. And one of those things that's really important to me are the people I love and, the, and my friends and my family. And so I make a point of spending really, you know, real quality time with them. Um, and, and I think too, that as a human, it's just, it's a normal thing to go through. You know, I think that some people struggle harder than others, but I feel as though everybody has ups and downs. And I just feel like we don't talk about the downs as much as we should, you know? And I, and I think it's a conversation that a lot of people, and I certainly, I didn't know how to have, you know, I felt like it was a weakness. I felt like it was a failure. I felt like it was, you know, a chink in my armor. And I just wanted to show the successes. And I just wanted to show and work really hard to, you know, just forget about it. Um, and, and yet, like, your successes all seem to come out of the opening up. Yeah. Of the dungeon. Yeah. So let, let's go back just briefly, because yeah. I know I want to take this conversation to a place where we were talking mm -hmm. last week. Uh, but in order to get to that point, I just got to give a little flashback of where you were, what you did yeah. in order to see where you're going. Yeah. So you're starting out in college. You were a member of the national rugby team. Things when you went off to college, pretty good, thumbs up. Oh, really good. Yeah, I was extremely happy, excited. I was, had an academic scholarship. You know, rugby was my kind of life at that point. So I, this was my biggest dream to make the national U19 rugby team. And the thing about it, when I think of rugby, I think of the game, but I think afterward in the pub, everybody having fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best part of it. You know, that the culture around it, the, you know, that camaraderie that you build with your teammates and also the opposition. You go to war, but afterwards you go out and you just, have a night. It's a good time. It's a great time. Yeah. So it was, and it was a, uh, you know, where I grew up on the West coast of Canada, this was really the epicenter of rugby Canada. And, and in, in Canada, rugby is a, it's a really big sport. You know, it's like hockey, hockey, rugby, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's uh, it's well, where I grew up on the West side, it was definitely huge. So this was growing, you know, I was playing in elementary school, you know, when I was high school, my, my high school coach was a national rugby coach. Um, and so this was sort of my biggest goal. And so I made it. And, um, but I put so much pressure on myself for whatever reason. When you got to college? Or yeah, it just was throughout my life. Way. I always put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed. I 
I just hit a wall. What, what happened? You get to college. So I get to college, and I so what? And I was I was preparing for the World Cup in France. We were going to the U19 World Cup, right? And I played fly half, which is like the quarterback and the field goal kicker in one position. So there's just a lot of pressure on that position to begin with. And I would put a lot of pressure on myself. And I'm always in my head. And, and as we were training for the World Cup, I thought, man, what if I miss an easy field goal like right in front of the field goal post? Like, what if I blow a game with an, uh, by missing a really easy kick? And these thoughts would not stop in my head. And they would come to me at night in the form of anxiety. And this anxiety caused me to, not, to be unable to sleep. And so once I started losing sleep, that was oh, when I really started man. to go downhill. And I just started slowly sliding into depression. And it got so bad where I couldn't go to school. Like my parents would drive me to school and I just wouldn't get out of the car. I couldn't do it. I was, I was in this state of indecision, like where I couldn't make a decision in this depression. Like I just was unable to choose what I should do, whatever it would be. And I ended up staying in this, this kind of field of indecision, which ultimately made me make a decision of not doing whatever it was, right? So I, I dropped out of school by not going. I got dropped from the rugby team from not going. I actually told them I had a back injury. Ultimately, I lied to them and told them that I had a back injury and I, and I couldn't play. But really, it was because I just physically was not able to go. And I was unable to leave the house. And when it was really bad, I was just a shut-in in my parents' house. And, you know, my friends would come visit me, and but, like, nothing would really work. And so I was, I was really it's in like a state it, of... It's inconceivable I, for me to imagine right. you that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a really... And for me, it was inconceivable that I could feel that way because for my whole life, I had never felt that way. And it wasn't until my friends came and pulled me out of the house that summer where I had already dropped out of school and took me to a new town where they were going to all going to work for, you know, in a new town for the summer. It was kind of like, let's go work in a, another town, come back before we go back to school. Change the environment. Change the environment. I met some new people. I got a job. I started talking about what I was really going through for the first time. And I also met young people that I was totally inspired by. Young people that I had never met before, but were all of us, like these young people had their own businesses. They had traveled around the world. And I had just not met people like that, right? And, and, and so I thought, wow, these people exist. And they like really brought me up. And I thought on the drive home, I thought, you know what, I really have to, make a conscious effort to only surround myself with people that inspire me. You know, that's going to help me feel. Big decision. That decision changed my life, completely changed the direction of my life. Because I came home and I surveyed my friends and thought, who checks that box of being inspiring? And there was only one kid that came to mind. I didn't even know him. I knew of him. And I grew up in the same neighborhood of him with him. And his name was Johnny. And Johnny, I knew two things about him. He was a self-taught filmmaker. And I knew that because he would make summer movies at the end of every summer of all of his friends and all the kids in the neighborhood would go watch the summer movies. And I thought, I want to make a movie, you know? How fun would that be? Like uh, watching Saturday Night Live and sketch shows. I thought it'd be so fun to make a movie and make a TV show. And the other thing I knew about him was he took my sister to prom. <laughs> so <laughs> So I was, you trusted him. So I, well, I was conflicted. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> do I reach out to him? Do I trust him? Uh, but I was like, yeah. So I call him. I'm like, Johnny, let's make a movie. And he's like, yeah, I'm on board. And we got two other friends that 
we all, we both knew we we're, were going to be into this idea. One of them being Johnny's older brother. The other being a, a friend, Dave, who went to school with me and, and knew Johnny because they were in a breakdance crew together. And then Duncan was the fourth, Yeah, it was right? the older brother. So, and we all grew up in Victoria, BC, small town in Canada on an island. And, and so we started thinking, okay, what movie do we want to make? And we can't think of a good idea for a movie. And, and at the same time, Johnny's in, uh, he's now in, at first year university at McGill, right? And he's taking English class and the professor assigns him a poem as required reading, The Buried Life, 150 year old poem written by Matthew Arnold. And something in the poem strikes him and he brings it back to us. And he says, guys, read this poem. And there's four lines in the poem, which are, but often in the world's most crowded streets, but often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life. And he's like, guys, this poet 150 years ago is articulating this feeling that we can't articulate, that we have all these things that we wanna do, but they're buried. And they get buried by school, by work, by you know the day to day. But then you have moments of inspiration, which eventually gets buried again. And oh you, man. And we thought, wow, okay, we don't know what this movie's about. We're going to call it The Buried Life. And then we thought, how do we unbury these things that are inside us? And we, and we decided to ask this question, what do you want to do before you die? Because for us, the thought of death was the only thing that shook us enough to think about what was important, right? Once we really internalized that we are not immortal, what are we going to do with it? Which is not many people think of at 19 or 20 years old. No. I, I mean, I get, and it wasn't certainly, I always thought about my, the thing that I thought about was the, the, the infinite, infinite, infinite sort of, well, I guess I should say the fact that you're going to be dead forever. That's what I would think about. You know, I, could, I couldn't yeah. get that. I couldn't get my mind around that you were going to die and then that was it forever. And then Duncan's friend had just passed away by accidentally drowning. And so we were kind of, sort of faced with this a little bit. And this question for us just cut through all the, the bullshit. It's like, you're gonna die, what do you wanna do? And so from there, we made a list of our buried dreams, essentially. And they were, when we made the list, we had two rules. One, you had to pretend that you had $100 million in your bank account. <laughs> And so you could do anything. You could do anything. You, and you weren't going to let anything stop any of these wishes. No. And, right. and not only that, from a monetary perspective, you could do anything. But also the other rule, number two, was you had to pretend you could actually do anything. So like the money wasn't an issue. And also your ability was not an issue. So now... Yeah, it's just, if you want to swim the English Channel, you can swim. Whatever you want to do. That's right. If you want right. to write a New York Times bestseller, you're not a writer... It's okay. It's okay. Put it on the list. Right. You know, you, so we just thought, okay, now if, if you could do anything, what would you do? Well, we would go to space, write a New York Times bestseller, uh, pay off our parents' mortgage, make a TV show, tell a judge you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> right? Walk away from an explosion in slow motion. You know, all these things that were just like, grow a mustache. Anything that we'd ever thought would have been fun, cool to do. Um, cover Rolling Stone you know, whatever. Just the things that we thought if we could do anything, what would we do? And then we had this list and we thought, okay, each time we cross something off this list, let's help a stranger we meet do something they want to do on their list. So every time we cross something off, we'll help someone else do something that they want to do 
by asking strangers this question, what do you want to do before you die? If we can help them, then we will. So that was the goal, right? That was the mission. We're going to take two weeks off our summer jobs. Two weeks. Yes. <laughs> so it always starts out that way. <laughs> yes. Two weeks, 12 years ago. Yeah. So we're going to take we're going to take two weeks off our summer jobs before we go back to school. And we're going to go after this list and help people. And we're going to make a movie about it, right? We're going to make a documentary. And we're going to see what we can accomplish and see who we can help. And it'll be fun. And we didn't really even tell anybody what we were doing, but we're just like, that's the, that's the mission. Whether we have to walk, bicycle, or drive, like we're going to just do it. And so we would cold call companies out of the phone book. It was still, there was a phone book back then. Right. And pretend we had a production company with deep voices <laughs> and see if they would be on board to sponsor our movie. And a juice company was like, I'll pay for your gas. So we're like, okay, great. We bought a camera on eBay because we worked two jobs throughout the summer. We... Would uh, we built a website? Put our 100 things to do before you die on the website, and so now you got a website, gas. We bought an RV from Johnny and Duncan's uncle. Oh, all right, um, and now and we took two weeks off work. So I was like, I told my boss I had a, a wedding. Right, I was like a long Indian wedding. I have to go to <laughs> <laughs> for two weeks, and and then we thought, okay, what, what happens after the two weeks? To, well, so the t- so then we hit the road, and all of a sudden, these list items that we think that could not happen, right? People are starting to help us cross things off our list item. And pe- like, what's the first? So the first the first thing that we wanted to do um, was be an. I wanted to be a knight in shining armor, right? Full shining armor. I was able to borrow a suit of shining armor. This is the first thing we crossed off. We go downtown Victoria. We, we, we convinced the news they should be there. And I walk out with my suit of, and this is like an armor that you would see in a museum. It was full chainmail, helmet, gloves. And I walk outside and sort of this awkward moment with this, the news cameras are kind of like, okay, what is going on? And there's a, a six-year-old boy walking with his mom and he's holding a plastic sword. And he doesn't say a word. He just lets go of his mom's hand, runs over to me and kneels down on one knee and bows his head (laughs) so i'm like oh i'm a knight like so i knight him i had to right (laughs) and then all of these kids started coming out of the oh i don't mean everybody wants everyone wants to be knighted knighted. so i'm knighting these kids and walking them across the street and so the next day we officially leave on our tour and we're feeling good and pick up the paper and we we'd actually crossed off two list items because there i am on the front page of the newspaper which is one of the things on the list is make the front page of the newspaper. So I'm with the, the young boy crossing the street. He's got a sword, I've got a sword. And so this started to kick up this, like, this media. And as people started to hear, they would email us and be like, hey, I saw on your list, like number nine, ride a bull. My friend owns a bull ranch, he can help you. you know. Or like number 41, make a toast at a stranger's wedding. My friend's getting married, I'm the best man, I can get you in. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then people would send us their dreams. I've always dreamed of flying a fighter jet or, you know, I want Morgan Freeman to read me a bedtime story, (laughs) you know, all these crazy dreams. And so we got inundated by all these, you know, requests and also people to help. Did it mushroom really quickly? Yeah, really, really quickly. Because all of a sudden we were national news. And after the two weeks, we had hundreds of emails from this little email that we had made from our website, the crew at The Buried Life. And we, we, 
And one of those emails was from a producer who saw us on the news. He said, have you guys ever thought about making a TV show? And we thought, well, number 53 on the list is to make a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) And long story short, we met with networks in Canada and they offered us a show. But we we ended up not doing it. I see in your face, it's like, we knew something. So we had this weird gut feeling that it was not the right thing for us to do. We when we met with the networks, they were like, this is great. We're gonna we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll pull in this person and change this. And then we got the contract and we were gonna lose it. It was pretty clear that we were gonna lose the buried life. And it was working for us. You know, it was uh it was inspiring our friends. We were having a good time and we thought we're just gonna not do the show and just keep doing it our own. So we went back to school. We raised more money throughout the school year, cold calling bigger companies. And we actually raised quite a bit of money just through sponsors. Like Levi's came on board and they, they, they bought us a big 1969 purple transit bus and Palm Pilot at the time. You know, remember Palm? I remember, yeah. Yeah, we probably put them out of business. <laughs> they, they sponsored us and we got a crew from LA to come film us the next summer. And we did two months this time. Instead of two weeks, we did two months and again, crossing these off our list, helping other people, more incredible experiences, crossing off list items that we never thought were possible, like, you know, singing the national anthem in, like before a, an NBA game, you know, and helping people with just like these really, with really the help of other people. The only way we help people is through the help of other people. And so- What is this doing to your days? Because you're getting all these messages and it's it, it sounds like, Part of it is putting together a jigsaw puzzle where, okay, we we can get this. Where's the next piece? Are, is, is your mind like constantly engaged or are there any boring moments to this? Well, the boring moments are in, you know, in between the tour, in between, you know, the seasons on the show or like, you know, the build up to it. But at but, that, but while at that you're point, actually doing, while it. you're doing it, and at that point we were just doing it, you know, it just constantly. Um, yeah, it, it was putting together pieces, but also it was like magic would kind of happen, you know. You know that it's like when serendipity just sort of shows up. That's how we felt. Like people would show up in the most unexpected places to help us and to help other people. Like if we found somebody and we're like, ah, this, like I wish we could help this person. You know, for instance, the first person we helped was this guy, Brent. We met him in Kelowna, which is a smaller town in British Columbia. And we said, uh, he said, before I die, I want to bring pizzas down to the homeless shelter. And we thought, well, we could help this guy. Like, we don't- and That's simple enough. That's simple enough, yeah. And we didn't have much money, you know, and, but we, we could buy some pizzas. And so we went and met him. And, and the reason why he wanted to bring pizzas down to the homeless shelter, because he said that he lived in that homeless shelter for many years. He said, when people brought in food, it was the best days because it felt like someone actually cared about him. And so he got himself out of the homeless shelter by starting his own landscaping business. So he was out doing his landscaping business, but his land, his truck had broken down and his old landscaping business was, was in peril. And we asked him, is there anything we can do to help? He made no mention of his truck. He just said the pizzas. So we thought, we got to figure out a way to get this guy a truck. And we literally had $480 between the four of us. And we went to a used car salesman and we told him Brent's story. And he gave us a $2,100 truck for $480. Oh, man. <laughs> and we drove it up to him and just gave him the keys. And he, it was, that was the first time we ever helped somebody. So it was just had a profound impact 
on all of us where we thought we got to keep doing this, you know? And, and so, and we just kind of kept doing it, you know? And, and does it get addictive? Like you give that feeling and now you want to up the ante. Yeah. It, on two fronts. One, when you help somebody, you, that feeling is, is really remarkable. You know, you know, it like you, everyone's felt it. It's, um, it feels like it has a resonance that just sticks with you. You know, if you go skydiving, it's awesome. It's fun, but it's kind of fleeting. But when you help somebody, it's got this vibration that kind of sticks with you. And you also, what's really cool about helping someone in that way is you immediately build a connection to them in a instantaneous way. You leapfrog years of building a relationship because you're sharing a moment that means so much to them and you've helped facilitate this moment. And so you're sharing this really intimate, meaningful moment that will never go away, you know, in the sense that it's always going to be impactful to them. So we, you know, stay in touch with all these people that we we help. And it's kind of like, we don't have, I don't talk with them every day, but, you know, I'll touch base with them every couple of years. And it's like, we're still kind of old friends. It's, it's cool. Um, and then the other thing that's addictive on the actual artless side is like once you do something that you thought you could never do, you all of a sudden realize, wow, Nothing's you can impossible. do anything. Yeah, yeah. You can do anything. And you're sort of like, it's like you discovered a secret. Was there one case where that hit you? Yeah. So the the biggest thing on our list is number 95, play basketball with President Obama. And this was something we actually ended, we did a show with MTV and we told them we wanted to do this one. And we made a, uh, uh, when we did the deal with MTV, it was, um, it was clear that they would not help us with anything on the list. That was the, the deal that we did with them. And we hired our crew that we'd been traveling with to be our film crew. And we all of a sudden insisted we were executive producers of the show and we would edit it. So it was a very unique situation that we got ourselves into because we'd already turned down TV and now we had done it for a couple of years. We were in a place where we could actually, I mean, I don't know if we could have, we just did it and it worked. So we, so when we went after number 95, they were like, guys, don't do this. You know, like you're going to waste a bunch of money and, and you're never going to, you're never going to do it. Right. And it's such a small chance. And what year is this? This is, 2010, 11. Oh, right. So, and, uh, and so we go and we, we drive to DC and- So you didn't even reach out beforehand. This was, we're we, gonna we, pull up and- We pull up DC, yeah. House, we're, just, we're just gonna start talking people, talking people on the streets if they knew the president. That's our first, you know, well, that's all, <laughs> that's the way we start every time. What's the simplest thing we can do? And we are, we had sent emails to some anybody we could find an email address to because we'd remember this slogan when you saw a commercial like contact your local congressman. <laughs> so we thought we're we can contact all the local congressmen. So we would send these emails out to anyone we could get an email address to on Capitol Hill. Hey, we're we're trying to play basketball with the president. We're trying to you know four regular guys can play basketball with the president's proof that anyone can do anything. Can you help us on our mission? So most people ignored us. A couple of lower level officials would, would say, oh, you can meet with my assistant or whatever. So we, we had these lower level meetings. And if they liked us, they would pass on word to their boss. Hey, you should meet with these guys. And slowly but sure, we, we started climbing our way through Washington with these meetings. We're, we're basically lobbying in D.C. to play basketball with the president. <laughs> oh, man. And we get all the way up to Senator McCaskill. 
And then we get all the way up to the Secretary of Transportation. And he's bewildered when we step into his office. He has no idea what we're, who are these people in my office? And we actually get him on board. He says, you know what? <laughs> he says, give me, give me a minute. And he goes to his, his desk and he picks up the phone and he calls the White House while we're in the room. And he says, I have a meeting with the, the Baird Life gentleman here. And, uh, and I just want you to, you to know I, I support them. I endorse them, <laughs> right? Hangs up. So we're, we're like, okay, great. We just wait now for the, President Obama to call us. Like it's, we thought it was a done deal. And then we get an email from President Obama's scheduling staff saying, thank you for your inquiry about playing basketball with the president. Unfortunately, we can't do it. Sincerely, the White House Office of Appointments and Scheduling. And, and so, so what, ha- what happens at that point? Do you feel... At this point, we're like, no, we're not... Like at this point, we are so bullheaded and we had learned- We're gonna make this happen. We're gonna make, or we're gonna get kicked out of DC, right? right? And so, and at this point, we had learned from being in DC that the way the basketball games happened in, in, in DC with President Obama was through his body man, his personal aide, Reggie Love. Who played basketball for a little while at Duke. A hundred percent. He played basketball for Duke. So President Obama did not play basketball unless Reggie Love was on the court. And Reggie Love would would- basically send out a message to some select few higher level officials day of saying, hey, 7.30 tonight, let me know if you're in. And that's how these basketball games went down, right, in Washington. So we thought we got to get to Reggie Love. We heard that he worked out at the <laughs> YMCA. We, yeah, we heard that he worked at the YMCA every morning at 5.30. So he didn't because I we were there, right? So we went to the Y, we'd scope out. And he was like Obama's personal assistant or yeah. went with him everywhere. Everywhere. His personal right. aide, his body right. man. You know, he's every photo of President Obama, like walking anywhere, Reggie's somewhere. So we were able to track down Reggie's email address. And we weren't sure if it was the right one, but we started sending him emails the same way that he would send out emails or messages to the, to the higher level officials, which is like, Reggie, you and the president versus us, YMCA. 7.30 Thursday, we got the court reserved, right? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and what does Reggie do with that? Well, we show up and we're waiting and they don't show up. Nothing. No response. We do it a couple times. No response. Finally, we got to leave D.C. because like parking a 35-foot bus in D.C. is expensive. So we're like, oh, we got to go. And we're just kind of like, shit. And so then I get, a, I get a call from a block number on my phone and I pick it up and it's, what's this I hear about you wanting to play basketball against the president and I? And it was Reggie Love. Oh, man. And so I say, man, yes, this is why we're trying to do it. And he's like, you know what? I like this. I like this. I think I can make this happen. Give me two weeks. I got to run it by the press team, right? The communications team at the White House. They, they sign off on it. We're good. So we wait for two weeks. We had a call back from Reggie. He says, gentlemen, talk with the communications team. Not going to happen. And we're just. Oh, man. And this was like the big blow. This is the big bomb. Like, and I think that he thought it was going to happen and he felt bad. And so he's like, hey, if you're ever in DC, let me know. I'll at least show you the White House basketball courts. And so we're back in DC and we shoot him a note and he actually responds and he meets us. And, he, and he's like, hey, let me show you around. This is my office. And he's got this nook off the Oval Office. <laughs> we're like, this is the Oval Office, right? And you go back through the, down, the back steps of the White House to where there's uh, used to be tennis courts. Now there's basketball court. There's a presidential seal on each hoop. There's one presidential basketball, and 
and we're shooting around and we're like, hey, Reggie, can we film? Because we want to like, our friends will just never believe us. And he's like, yeah, yeah, the president's not in town, so go for it. And all of a sudden, President Obama walks on the court. What? Completely surprises us. Completely, we are just out of our minds, just blown. And he's like, hey, I heard about the show. I heard about what you're doing. I thought the least I could do is come down and shoot a basket with you. And then we just shoot hoops with him for 15, 20 minutes as a White House photographer there. And we're just hanging with him. You know, he, it was just so cool. He, he is, ama I mean, he's amazing human being as everyone, well, hopefully everyone knows, but he- Was there a moment during the, the, the shooting that stands out to you? It was the moment where I, re where I remembered that I was shooting hoops with the president because no more than three, four, five minutes into it, I, he is such a cool guy and so disarming and so easy to be with, I immediately forgot he was the president. Oh, I was trash talking. You know, he was trash talking back. We were trying to hit shots that he wasn't hitting. And I was, I had this moment, I was like, whoa, that's shit. This that's is the president. The president. <laughs> I better watch myself. Like there's secret service around somewhere. And, and that day was just beyond. And the thing that was topped it off was, this is just bizarre, but we, we were, we got asked to do Oprah's show on the last season. And we had a call, the first call with her producers that day. But we were late for the call. And we, we said, we're sorry we were late. We were playing basketball with the president at the White House. <laughs> and that was just like, this was the, I, you know, you couldn't even digest what had really happened. That whole day was so surreal. But it just was like proof that anyone can do anything. Time for a break from our sponsors. And this week, we're going to do it a little different, because that's how I like to do it. I'm going to recite a poem. It's called Don't Just, written by Roy T. Bennett. It goes like this. Don't just learn, experience. Don't just read, absorb. Don't just change, transform. Don't just relate, advocate. Don't just promise, prove. Don't just criticize, encourage. Don't just think, ponder. Don't just take, give. Don't just see, feel. Don't just dream, do. Don't just hear, listen. Don't just talk, act. Don't just tell, show. Don't just exist, Live. Don't just have a website. Put it on Squarespace. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I go a little over the top. But you know, it reminds me of another quote. It comes from William James. It goes like this. To change one's life, one, start immediately. Number two, do it flamboyantly. Number three, no exceptions. So thank you, William, for giving me the liberty to be flamboyant. But let's just get right down to the nuts and bolts of it. This company was started to create change. The guy who started it was in a position where he had a hire and he's going to one job site 
after another, after another, putting in the same job opening. And he thought, couldn't you just figure out a way to go to one site, put in your description and get the candidates that you need? Voila, ZipRecruiter was born. All you gotta do is go to ZipRecruiter.com. You throw in the backslash Fussman, you're gonna get a chance to do it for free. You type in your job description, and with a single click, you're gonna have qualified candidates in 24 hours. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Now, back to Ben. So this turns into MTV's top rated show. Yeah, I was definitely out yeah, at the time it was it was one of the one of the top shows and it was uh it, it was my favorite episode was the girl who needed fingers and uh, the bionic hand yeah the bionic hand uh what what was it what was the setup to finding a high school girl yeah who didn't have a hand yeah it was so we didn't set out to find her uh we had an intern at the time working with us and we were we knew that we wanted to help somebody and uh, and he said, guys, check this out. And 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 he really, you know, found it. he found the hashtag that these friends. So there was a hashtag on Twitter called that said Hand for Tory, and it was a it was created by a group of friends that wanted to get their friend who was born with one hand a bionic arm because she was it was her biggest dream was to have a bionic arm, and they wanted to try and make it happen. And the, the best way they thought they could raise awareness was creating a hashtag and trying to you know get some momentum and. And so we sort of saw this and ended up contacting a company that made the best bionic appendages in the world and just told them uh, Tori's story and they donated a, an arm. And we surprised her with it and followed her as she- On stage. Yeah, so we were, we, so the, the way, so that's one thing to, <laughs> to, to help somebody. It's another to really, I, as I said, I love surprises. So every, most times when we help someone, it's a total surprise for them. So we were speaking at this event and uh, there was a, it was the Invisible Children Conference. And we, under the guise that she had won free tickets to this event, we, their organizers reached out to her. It was, you know, last minute. She was confused kind of, but she was flown to LA to, to experience the event. And they ushered her backstage and they said, oh, they, they actually just want to ask you some questions on stage. And so she kind of pushed her on stage and we were on stage. And, and then we kind of on stage came clean and said, you know what? We actually have a surprise for you. And she's just sort of bewildered. There's, you know, thousands of people in the audience. And we tell her that, you know, we have a bionic arm for you. And it's because of hanger clinics. And, um, and it was just a really you know, emotional and special moment. Um, and then we followed her. I went back to Ohio where she's from and and it takes a, a long time to learn how to use the hand, physical therapy. And, and you don't actually get it for a number of, of weeks 
And so she gets it, and I'm there when she uses it for the first time, and her dad's there to see her, hugs her dad with two arm, you know, full arms. And, uh, and actually what was cool is I was speaking at Bowling Green University in Hawaii a month ago, and she's going to school at Bowling Green. So I oh, brought her up on stage. Wow. We, you know, reunited. And she is taking um, social work because she wants to work in a uh, homeless shelter by her small town because of the experience that she had with the arm. She wants to give back. And so I think it was just a really, like for me, a clear, it, it, it just kind of dawned on me like, wow, th- this ripple effect you have you know, by just doing what you love, right? You inspire other people to do what they love. So I've seen that on both sides. And and this is something that I didn't understand when we started Buried Life because we never really thought we would tell people that we were going to cross things off our list. We thought it'd just be sort of selfish to like, you know, publicize that. And the documentary was going to be about helping other people and asking this question. That we'd do our stuff on the side because it'd be fun. But people actually were inspired by this idea for guys going after their list that made them think about what they wanted to do. And on the side of helping people, you know, when you help someone, it not just impacts them, but it impacts everybody around them. And that ripple effect on both sides, you, you really don't know. Um, but I think that like, if there's, you know, one thing that I, that I feel is a real truth is that that's why I think a bucket list is such a good way to, it's a tangible f- step into following your purpose because you're actually like starting to articulate the things that are important to you. You're starting to prioritize the things that are important to you by actually, you know, make take them from an idea and making them real, you know, when you talk about them. That's why I think that's an important step. You want to share your list so people actually can help you. And you, again, you build accountability. But what you're really doing is just starting a roadmap towards your purpose, you know, and, and I think those can be small little steps and they can be fragmented. But all of those things, when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love just by doing it. You know what I mean? So that has been a cool realization because it's like, wow, great. <laughs> it's a win-win. I can just do what I love and, you know, other people will see that and get inspiration. And that's how Buried Life really began was other these young kids doing what they love that triggered me to think, man, what can I do? Like my friend started a clothing line in college, no experience in fashion, took out a $10,000 loan, made it happen, started making these clothes. And I was like, whoa, that is crazy. I want to do something like that. And I thought about what I wanted to do. And I was like, I want to make a movie. And so it's this crazy thing about getting triggered by these things. And and that's why the book like- Leads is, to a New York Times number one best-selling book. What do you want to do before you die? Again, something, you know, four guys that barely passed English class. It's like, <laughs> one guy did it. I'm not going to say who, but one guy failed English 11. But yeah. And the book is like, that was the goal of the book was it's all these crowdsourced dreams, right? We asked the community, what do you want to do before you die? I got 10,000 answers or something uh, crazy and chose people's list items that, that made us feel something in some way, made us laugh, made us emotional, you know, and then we got artists to illustrate them, to bring them to life. And, you know, tell our story along the way, put things like quotes that move us. But like the idea is hopefully something in that book triggers you to think, wow, okay, yeah, what do I want to do? So you really seem to get the essence of positivity through this experience. Mm-hmm. And where, where does it ultimately lead you when it's over? Yeah, so 
So now cut to, we do the show, we do the book, right? Everything's, we do a ton of speaking. Um, everything is building, building, building. And, uh, and then we thought, oh, we want to make, uh, we had a really a unique experience with television because we were thrown into it all of a sudden and we were all of a sudden in control of it. So we, by default and by doing, you know, making mistakes, we learned how to do it. And so we thought, let's make more shows and let's, let's start a production company. So the four of us started a production company that was a number of years ago and starting a production company is a grind and, you know, we start to put out some new shows and as it grows, I am starting to realize the business of production and it's not something that I love. And I'm also starting to realize as the company grows, you start to do less and less creative stuff. You know, you're running the business versus making the, the content. And I'm working really hard, I'm working really hard, I'm working really hard. And come a year and a half ago, I hit another wall. And After understanding the essence of happiness, yes, yes, yes. you go back to the same place. <laughs> yes, I had what it all life? figured out. <laughs> oh, and man. I'm back to square one. What? <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the thing. Okay, you're back to square one. Did you feel exactly the same way? Or, I mean, were you pacing around a house not wanting to leave the house? Mm. Same thing. No, good question. So not exactly the same thing, but the beginnings of the same thing. Oh, so you set, you smelled the scent. Oh man, 100%, I know this. Hundred percent. I I I started. To, I I started. I was aware this time. You know, it's kind of like the first time. I don't even know. If that's a good analogy, but I'm going to make it. The first time you're in love, right? And it takes so long to break up because it's this is everything to you, and you're absolutely like, you know, you're so you do, you're blinded by it. And then you get in another relationship, and you're like, oh yeah, oh I see this. Something else is happening. I I don't think this is going to work, and you get sort of. You, you break up before oh, you would have it. before, but you go through all this pain in the first one where you yeah. break up, you come back, you break up, you come back. Yeah. So for me, the, it was second like- Second time, I've seen this play before. Second time, I thought I had learned a lot about myself. One, I'd learned what I needed to be healthy, you know? And I wasn't doing some of those things, right? I was working so hard and I was, and I just finally realized- So now you're not out realized, on the road anymore. No, no, that, I'm in an office and I'm just like, I am like, I'm buried. I'm buried, right? I'm buried again. You went from the buried life to being buried. <laughs> yeah. So I was buried in the beginning and we got out of it and then I became buried again. And I, remember we were talking about this. What I realized when I was having this conversation with you a week ago or whatever. There was this moment. It was an amazing moment where you stopped talking and your eyes yeah, went out this place. I and I'm thinking, man, what is he thinking? Yeah. And I realized that I wasn't, I had no creative expression. And for me, I guess that is so important because back in the day, it was the buried life that we, you know, it was, we were making a movie, we were producing, we were being creative, we were problem solving. And I had stopped doing that. And I, I had this feeling inside me when we were doing it that I wanted to create some more stuff. And, but I just didn't have time. I was like, ah, oh, I just don't have time. And it was making me unhappy. And so I noticed some things like I was, I was starting to have trouble sleeping. And that's a big indicator to me that I need to really check myself. Um, but I had, I had developed some techniques, right? Meditation. I had under, started to understand the importance of, you know, exercising, taking breaks, um, you know, healthy food and this type of thing. But that wasn't working. I kept slowly feeling worse and worse, you know, mentally. You know, I was, I was starting to feel depressed. 
And it finally got to the point where I was like, look, I, I'm going to have to, you know, I said this to myself or I, my girlfriend, I said, you know, I, I'm going to have to change something because I'm afraid that I'm going to go down the same path. Same and, way you made a change when you were young, yeah. just by changing where you were. Yeah, yeah. That started and the whole cycle. And the people cycle. I surrounded myself with. And, and it was a really hard decision because I, I, you know, I loved producing and I, and I, we had worked so hard to build this production company, but I, I, you know, I had to say to the guys, I said, guys, listen, I don't think I'm the right person to lead this production company. And for someone like me who I have a difficult time with that type of thing, you know, I, I sort of saw it as a, as a failure. What, were you, did you see it as a betrayal that, you know? Yeah, I, I would totally, like I felt loyal, to, you know, we'd all worked so hard and here I was sort of manning the ship and, and I was all of a sudden pulling shoot. And I was like, but ultimately what happened was absolutely for the best on both sides. And well, I, think this generally, I think this generally happens. And so what happened was we restructured the production company. Some of the other guys stepped up to run it. We brought some more people in. We brought in some funding and it's thriving, right? And I am not in the in the day-to-day -day of the production company. And I thought, you know what? what and I was starting to getting, I was beginning uh, to get requests to speak because of a TEDx talk that I did. And so I thought, let me just do these talks, you know, in the meantime and sort of see what happens. So I started speaking. And when I started and this speaking- this is another part of the process where letting everything out of yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so you're, you're actually doing the same things that you did yeah. before it's to get yourself cycle. out of the mess. Yeah, yeah, bananas. New place, start to let it seep out of you. Yeah, and exactly. And so I started talking about now publicly these feelings that I'm having of feeling depressed and talking about where the buried life began for me, which was out of this really dark depression. And when I started opening up about that, I was totally floored by the response that I got from people in the audience and online when I started opening up more about it. And I was, it, it kind of opened up this entire new world for me in the sense that I, I realized, wow, like, I really have a, a, the potential to impact people just by showing that vulnerability. And, I, and, and ultimately, I think so many more people have that potential to impact so many more people by showing that vulnerability. And as I learned about what is going on in this country and around the world, as it, uh, as it relates to mental illness and mental health and the staggering statistics around suicide, you know, one in five um, people struggle with mental health. But there is someone takes their own life in the U.S. every 15 minutes. So over 100 suicides a day. Man. Now, I think what we can do to, to curb that is, is break the stigma around it with healthy, productive conversations. And that will also help the people that are talking about it. It'll help them. Because, you know, what's shareable is bearable, right? That's sort of the... Great and, line. And... As you start to step into this stuff that you think is actually your weakness, I really believe that you start to understand that it's your strength. And that's what I found. By talking about what I've been through, I've realized the impact it has. And I think people that, you know, uh, and you start, you're starting to see it more, right? You're starting to see Ryan Reynolds talk about how he struggles with crippling anxiety. And you're like, how is Deadpool, you know? <laughs> 
have anxiety. You know, or Michael Phelps is talking about depression. He's suicidal after every Olympics. How is the greatest athlete in of all time, you know, struggling with this? It's because they're human beings and we are all human beings and human beings struggle. That's just the way it is. That's what the Buddha says. It's just the truth. And if people really understood that, they would know that then they can talk about it because they're not the only person. Whoever they talk to has been someplace. And those struggles ultimately teach you things. And when you push, you know, sort of step into them, you grow, right? You really grow. And so... So you get up to talk. Does it suddenly feel good to be able to open yourself up in front of large groups? I think that it, in the beginning, it was terrifying. The first time I did it, I had to ball my fist because my hands were shaking. So I was really scared. Uh, what, then, what, what was scary about it? The idea that you were speaking in front of a large group of people because you had spoken yeah. in front of a large group of people with cameras on you before. Yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the speaking. It was the being honest about my struggles with depression when I was younger and like opening up and being really honest about that and being, I mean, be vulnerable, basically. It was about being vulnerable in front of a large group of people. And, uh, and the first time I, I talked about it, I was just really terrified and I was just shaking. And then the next time it was a little bit easier and then it was a little bit easier. And now it's, it's, it's not a thing. You feel like you have control over it? I feel it. like it's the power has totally shifted. And I don't think it's like a, an unhealthy type of, like, I just talk about it all the time and it's something that, you know, but it, it really, I feel like it has total power and purpose because I can see when I talk about it, I'm connecting with somebody, you know, because they've been there or somewhere like that. And I can, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation it immediate or it's it's with thousands of people the the the, the room shifts and i can, can i can tell i'm connecting with with people and they're listening to what i'm saying and what i'm saying i really believe i really believe i really believe that this stigma will change but it needs to happen quicker because i believe we're at the place where we were with lgbtq 5 10 years ago where it was People didn't talk about it, but now it's in almost every conversation. In five or 10 years, we have to, we, we will be in that place with mental health. We have to be because it affects everybody. And we need to speed up that process because too many people are taking their own life because they feel like they are trapped, right? They feel like they're alone. And, um, and we need to destigmatize therapy you know, and, and even medication to a, to a certain degree. You know, I'm not talking about the overprescription. That's a different conversation. But I'm just talking about if you're in a low and you need something, support, whatever that may be, you need to take that support, you know. And then through therapy, I mean, look, I think everyone should be so lucky to have a therapist. Like a therapist, for me, if you have a good therapist, they're like, a life coach. There's someone that can give you tools to navigate tricky decisions. There's someone you can call on if, if you need help, sort of, should I go left? Should I go right? Or, you know, and really understanding who you are. Because when you're young, you, things happen to you, you know, that you internalize and subconsciously they can sort of have an impact on you when you're older. 
and you, and you don't realize you don't, that- They're blind. Yeah. You're blind to them. Yeah. You need someone to be like, hey, we're not, <laughs> remember the, you, have your yeah. you see that that's why you do that and you're like oh my god <laughs> of course that makes so much sense and the, like that's just learning about yourself like i don't know why if you play basketball why would you you don't try and play basketball without a basketball coach why would you try and go through the biggest game of your life without a life coach like that is is, is what i think a good therapist is and they're your friend and it's just like it's amazing. It's hard to find one that you really connect with because like, if you just think about what are the odds that you connect with a random person, probably low. So it takes time and that's hard. And there's a high barrier of entry. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not it, really talking a, about that. Does a good this. therapist need to be a friend? No, or, no, not necessarily. No, no, no. I no don't but so. I mean, I think you just you have a connection. A place? You trust, oh, okay. you trust, you trust them. So I think there's all these stigmas that should be removed and, and everyone would be, you know, we'd be in a better baseline, you know, and, and like educating people around how to have these conversations. And so this is all the stuff I've learned from in the last year and a half from opening up about it. You know, I've, I've learned about the, the situation we're in now. Uh, I've learned how many of my friends and people I admired also struggle with different mental health issues or, you know, struggles or, I mean, let's call it, I mean, Adam from um, starting Movember had a, had a great term. He's like, why don't we call it brain fitness instead of mental health? Like, let's change the language. Let's call it brain fitness because at the end of the day, it's brain health. It should, we need to think about this as, as the same way you think about the health of your body, like the rest of your body. You have a, an artery that's clogged or, you know, you're diabetic, you take insulin, like all these things are seen in the same world where mental illness is just completely different. But at the end of the day, it's an organ in your body. You know, let's, let's think about it the same way. It's your, it's your brain fitness. So how do you work on your brain fitness? Well, you, you talk about it. That's how you get the toxins out. You talk about it. You know, you meditate or you have quiet time or you do things, you know, you, you help someone else. If you're feeling like crap, Go help someone else. That's gonna bring yourself out of your own head and you're gonna be thinking about someone else and you're gonna feel better. You're gonna build a connection with someone and that connectivity is gonna make you feel better. Um, well, this brings us to the word that you used in our conversation mm -hmm. when we were sitting down over coffee, recycling. Mm -hmm. Where you basically took everything that you had learned yeah. during the buried life yeah. and brought it to a new place. Because a, a lot of people, they work in a place and then it comes to an end and they feel like it's the end. But you turn the end into a beginning. And this is something that I just started to understand in the past year. And I, ha I was having a conversation with my uncle when I was going through this difficult time trying to decide if I was gonna, what I was gonna do with the production company. And, and he said, Ben, this is totally normal. It, you know, this is what I like to call recycling your career. I, I never heard of that. Me neither. And I thought, and it, it just clicked. It just made so much sense that, right, you're not starting again from the beginning. You're taking all the things that you've learned, all the skills that you've developed, and you're changing direction. And that direction is healthy because as a human being, we change, we develop. So as you grow and change, 
the thing that you want to do will probably grow and change. You know, the fact that you think that you might just stay in this one thing your whole life, maybe, maybe that's something that develops and, and you grow and it grows. And, and I think that happens for a lot of people. But I think for a, a lot of other people, it, it doesn't. You get tired of it, you know, or you want to, something else is, you're triggered by something else. You can be a truck driver and pretty soon we're going to have self-driving cars, self-driving yeah. trucks. Yeah. You're going to have to go to a new place. There's a lot of people in this country and around the world that definitely will, will need to recycle their careers because of, yeah, AI and different types of technologies. I mean, you see it already. And you know what? It's almost, it's also, you could even look at like upcycling, you know, because you're actually, you're, you're, you're improving. If you're taking the things that you've learned and you roll them up into the next thing where you're actually taking a step up, you know, you could look at it like that. And that's what happened for me. Like all these things that I learned, I kind of upcycled them into this, this new thing. Um, but the, do you know what's a great thing about this is I'm sitting here listening and I'm thinking like you had this day in the White House shooting hoops with the president, trash talking. There's a lot of people who might have had that experience and look back longingly, sort of the way a high school athlete who was the captain of the football team or basketball team and remembers the glory days. Glory days. But you, you don't seem to give that off. It seems like you took that and you're now taking it to a higher place or everything that you learned from that experience. Yeah, uh, totally. But I, I think that it, it took some time for me to digest that and, and realize that, oh yeah, like maybe I do have some things that I can give to people. Uh, and, and, and so th that's where I feel now, like I'm, I'm, I'm adding value. Like I'm, I'm doing something that I love to do and, and I'm also helping other people, which is like the best, a good place for me to be, you know? Um, but, uh, but I think what is really, I, 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 I get it why most people don't recycle their careers. Is it fear? It's, I think it's fear. It's. It's also just hard to untangle yourself from this thing that you've been doing and invested in for so long that is your identity, that is your well-being. You know, it's where you draw your, your salary. Uh, you know, so you think about leaving a job and doing something completely different. It, you know, it's uncertain. And it's, I've, from just doing it and have, having done it before, in the moment, it is so difficult. But once you do it, if you feel that this is not the thing that you really should be doing, once you do it and you make that difficult step of untangling where you're at and starting on this new path, you look back and you think, oh man, I wish I would have done that a while ago. Because it was causing, I wasn't happy, you know? And, you, and what I find when I do that, what I usually look for and Tim Ferriss says this well. He says, when you're about to make a decision, ask yourself, what would it look like if it was easy? And when I started thinking about what would be easy, it was the speaking. So I can, I'm going to just go and, and, and follow this speaking path because this is something I, I, clearly people are asking me to speak so I can do it and it's easy and I love doing it. And from there, 
I will just sort of see what happens. I knew there's potential there. I had no idea there's as much potential as, as there is in speaking and just everything that's going around the engagements that I'm doing. But like, and so I think that is an important question because it doesn't have to be, you know, extremely difficult. Just think about, whoa, what if it was easy? What would you do? And, and, and try that and see if that works. Um, and, but it is a trick, it is a difficult step to take. Um, but that it's that first step that's so hard that you, that is the most important because then what I find is things start to show up. Once you take that step and you start going down that path that you feel like it's just, it gets, it's, People want to help. Opportunities present themselves, and it's more bountiful. Are, are you able to see the impact of your speeches the same way you're able to see the impact of a high school student getting a bionic hand, or is it more nuanced now? It's a good question. Uh, it's it's different. Like I. The impact that that we had on Tori, who we gave the bionic arm to, you know, and having seen her three, four years after, and reconnecting with her, you know, I, you can see that that what that impact was. And with with yeah, no, I, I just made a connection in my head. Like I in the earlier in the conversation, you were talking about speaking at Bowling Green, right? Yeah, and. Tori is there watching you. Yeah. And you're you're seeing it's it's funny you gave her a helping hand. Yeah. And now her life is going to be about giving a helping hand. Yeah. But now you're out there speaking. Could you get a sense of what she got from watching you speak? Did she say anything? Or oh. what? go ahead. Yeah, she 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 just said that it was because I showed the video and I told her story and she was there and, um, but she just thought she said it was so cool to see the whole story of how we kind of got to that point where we helped her, and uh, and she just thought it was a good reminder. I, I I think that what I find like when I'm speaking is it's just a reminder to people that, hey, it's okay to prioritize the things that are important to you in your life. In fact, it's more than okay. It's imperative for your own well-being. So let's just give you a couple tools to make that happen so you don't get buried. Because I've been buried, you've been buried, we've all been buried. So how do we stay unburied? And while we're at it, let's think big because when you think about big audacious goals there's a great power and energy around that you know that inspires you to get out of bed every morning that brings the best people by your side you know dreamers by your side and most people are playing in this world of realistic dreams but if you shoot for unrealistic dreams there's less competition <laughs> Right? <laughs> that is a great takeaway. That's one of my favorites. That that too, yeah. Tim Ferriss says that well. About 99% of the world being convinced they can't do great things. You know, they're shooting for realistic goals. And it's just a, uh, it's really true. Like 
when we when I think about how we did these things, you know, number one New York Times bestseller. When we told that was our that was our goal to our publisher, she was like, okay, guys, sure. Like, do you know how hard it is to get on the list, let alone number one as a first time writer? We're like, yeah, I know. We go for number one. <laughs> and you know, we just that was we just had that in our minds. We just would not stop till we till we got there. And President Obama, you know, the basketball story, it was so unique and out- outrageously audacious that I think that's what he responded to at the end of the day. Um, so there, I really believe there's, there's great power in those, those, those dreams. And I think that that is a very important thing to wake up in people, right? Like you, you can see that those inner big passions you know, are extremely important. Like what if Elon Musk just decided like, yeah, electric cars, Hyperloop, like space, all that stuff, too hard. It's not, I can't, how am I going to do that? Like that's one person. Look at the change that he's made. What if there's another Elon Musk that is the same ability or more that has bigger dreams? He needs to know that he can do that shit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't know that we're going to say anything that's going to top that line. I think I think you just hit it out of the park. <laughs> it's such a delight to sit with you because I so enjoy just seeing you happy. I like there's a vibrancy that comes off your face, comes off your expression, and I know it's going to stay there because you have figured it out. Well. Thank you. I've in this moment, you know, it's 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 amazing. I know that I will go down, you know, because that's just the ebb and flow of life and I think that that's that's just okay. But I I appreciate it and I thank thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure hanging out and talking with you. The best is yet to come, brother. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. to wrap it up that means some thank yous and gratitude are in order and let's start with our sponsors Squarespace all you gotta do is go to calfussman.com and you're gonna see why Squarespace makes me so happy in fact I've been telling people please if you're up for it send me a photo of where you listen to big questions It just makes my day when I see photos of the skyline in Singapore or Buddhas in Japan or custard in St. Louis. It just thrills me to see where in the world I'm connecting. And this is all coming through my new website on Squarespace, calfussman.com. And if you need a website for yourself, I am wholeheartedly asking you to go to squarespace.com enter the offer code fussman f-u-s-s-m-a-n and you will get 10% off a new domain name or website check it out change my life can change yours and ZipRecruiter talk about transformation you want to change your company you want to hire the best people all you got to do go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman and you're going to get a free trial. Just enter the job description and with a single click, you're going to get qualified candidates within 24 hours. 
ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. I want to say thank you to Alex Benayan for inviting me along on the adventure that turned into a book called The Third Door. It's just coming out today. Check it out if you want to change because it's all about change. Alex was the one who introduced me to Tim Ferriss and Tim Ferriss changed my life by pushing me to start this podcast. I resisted, resisted, resisted. He pushed, pushed, and pushed. And now I'm so happy to be doing this. I just love it. Also, I want to thank Kevin, the manager, for making all this possible. Makes me so happy to say, Kevin, the manager, that I think I'm going to recite another poem. This one comes from Dorothy Parker. It's about change as well. Goes like this. This is a short one. In youth, it was a way I had to do my best to please and change with every passing lad to suit his theories. But now I know the things I know and do the things I do. And if you do not like me so, to hell, my love, with you. See you next week. Cheers. Thank you.